Do please sit down. It's been election time, or well, by-election time anyway, and we've had politicians of various sorts been interviewed, made promises, asked questions, and part of the interviewer's skill is to push hard on difficult issues. So often the politicians then try their hardest not to answer the particular difficult question that's been asked, but answer a different question that they do have an answer to. And you can hear again and again uh, the interviewer trying to push back and saying, but that's not the question, you're not answering the question. And there's a lot of toing and froing, and they usually end up managed to dodge it completely. This week's gospel reading is one of those things that has been wonderful to have witnessed in person. This ancient text of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's it still stings with its sort of brilliant repartee and the sharpness of it. It's become a phrase that we're very familiar with and people use in all sorts of different ways. We use it within the church and in theological education, but it's not confined to that. We've got the Pharisees and the Herodians who are normally sworn enemies coming together to try to trap Jesus. My enemy's enemy is actually my friend. The Pharisees and the Herodians would actually have answered the question they posed differently, and Jesus knew that. Tell me, they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? So Jesus says, well, bring me the coin that's used for it. Now, this is significant because it was a poll tax, and it was equivalent to about one day's labour for a person per year, which actually is not that much, but of course, when you're living on the breadline, um, it is a lot. But it had to be paid in Roman coin, in the particular denarius uh, that was then sent back to Rome. Because Rome didn't want all this sort of, um, this rubbish of coinage from around the empire turning up in their coffers, because they'd have to sort of get it converted back into something they could spend. They didn't want Jewish shekels or Syrian shekels turning up. It had to be Roman coinage. And so the coin was handed over. And it's a trap, of course. And the answer, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, has been as much part of popular rhetoric as other phrases. I think, therefore I am. To be or not to be, that is the question. Play it again, Sam. Or, I had a dream. All these sayings are quite succinct and convey volumes and will actually say different things to different people. And so trying to mine into what's going on in this question is quite interesting. We need to consider the background to it as well. The background, especially for Matthew writing his gospel, because when Matthew's writing, and he's writing mainly for a Jewish Christian community, Jerusalem has fallen and is occupied by the Romans. The temple has been destroyed and a Roman temple is being constructed on the site. And Matthew, up until this point in his gospel, has put together a chain of conflict stories leading up to Jesus' arrest. We've already had the wicked tenants in the vineyard. We've had the wedding banquet with somebody thrown out because they come in 
without a wedding garment. They'd come in through the window or something. Um, we'll have a whole chapter of denouncing the hypocrisy of the scribes and the, and the, and the, uh, and, and the Pharisees. And the fall, fall of Jerusalem would have been vivid in people's memory. It was a bloody war. The Jews had, Jewish people had been led by zealot movements and had revolted. And Caesar had sent a legion to quell the revolt. The emperor by this time was Vespasian and he'd sent his son, Titus, who succeeded him as emperor um, to quell the revolt. And by and large, he was successful and there was peace in Judea of a sort a Roman peace, but not in Jerusalem. The zealots had retreated to Jerusalem and barricaded themselves in. Jerusalem had three walls. It was quite a, a, a city to defend and uh, to actually take it was quite hard work. But the zealots fell out among themselves. And the two, there were different parties, political parties among the zealots. And one group actually that, uh, that got the preeminence, started slaughtering the other group. And they set the food store on fire to encourage people to resist more strongly. And the Romans eventually got in to slaughter those they could find. And those that escaped, escaped through a secret network of tunnels. You might find parallels in this with the situation in Gaza at the moment. The battered Christian community that Matthew was writing for will be asking the question, well, how do we live in this new world order? Now, there are many people, including probably quite a number of politicians, who would use this scriptural text to say, well, you've got to keep religion and politics separate. Leave to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's our job to do the political bit. It's your job to say your prayers and look after people. It's interesting, there's a, a very small fuss going on at the moment um, that the bishops in the House of Lords have been seen to apparently oppose the government in almost every vote they've had. Um, and the, the chorus comes back, interestingly, not from the House of Lords, but from uh, Conservative members of Parliament. Uh, you're meant to render to Caesar the things that you do your religious bit and we'll do our political bit. They see a distinction sometimes between the body and the soul, the eternal, the temporary, the spiritual and the secular. It's termed in some circles that this separation is called a separation, and a technical term, non-overlapping magisteria. In other words, there's one set of rules for politics and there's one set of rules for religion and the two don't meet. Desmond Tutu was once told, you should keep the Bible out of politics. And his reply to that was, well, I don't know what Bible they've been reading because it's full of political statements. St. Matthew also would have been bemused by a statement like that. So where's the truth in this? Well, it might be different. There's Jesus asking for the coin. The crowd have confronted him. Right then, <clears throat> show me the coin. 
for the Roman tax, for the poll tax. Somebody fishes in whatever they had for pockets or something and produces the denarius, hands it over to him. And one scenario is Jesus looks at it as if he's been handed a dead rat. Whose picture is this? The Jews were forbidden to produce pictures of human beings for fear they would worship them and take the place of God. Whose picture is this? And whose superscription around the, at the edge of it? This would have been Tiberius, son of a god. His father, dead emperors were recorded the status of gods, and so the current emperor was a son of God. Son of a god. And high priest among high, above high priests. Almost as if he's say, I don't, you know, give it back. I don't want to touch this thing. All right, give back to the emperor the coin. In, pay him back in the same coin as he's paid you. And give to God the things that are God's. Thereby apparently giving the impression to everybody, oh, well, you've got to oppose the Roman rule. But I can't say that because that would be trouble. But I'm saying give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. But you can assume from my body language and everything, I actually think something different. And so that would be Jesus saying that, that the religious world and the secular world collapse into one. Because only God is mighty and to be served. The whole world is his. Give to God the things that are God's. Well, everything's God's. And therefore oppose the Roman rule with all your might. <clears throat> and that was the line largely followed by the Jewish zealots, which led to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and a, civil, a bloody civil war, war among the zealots. Collapsing the religious and the secular world into one was very, very bad news. But Jesus would also, we know, understood the prophet Isaiah because he chose the scroll of Isaiah to read in the synagogue. He'd have known it well. And he would have known that Old Testament reading that we had from Isaiah chapter 45. And I've got it here somewhere. Thus says the Lord to his Christ. And I'm using that deliberately to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Now the text will always say, thus says the Lord to his anointed one. But that actually is what's translated in our Greek Testament as Christ. Thus, and so Isaiah is saying, through God is saying to him, I have anointed this pagan ruler to bring deliverance to my people. And of course, that's exactly what he did do. He'd taken over from the Babylonian Empire, this is now the Persian Empire. The Persians had a different way of dealing with conquered people. They didn't want them hanging around in their empire, getting in the way and causing trouble. They sent them back home with a certain amount of oversight and having to pay tribute and told them to get on with it. And so Cyrus was going to send the Jewish people home back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which in fact is what happened. And this is the temple that ends up being destroyed by the Romans later. Jesus would have known about that. 
he'd have known that the Bible states in triumphant language that God is indeed Lord of all, but he will take secular rulers and he will take the civil society and will, rule, and will use that to deliver his will as well. And you've got the really difficult bit in that bit in Isaiah because it says that God will deliver peace and evil. The modern English translations are a bit um, sort of a weasel words in this. It's the sanitised low-fat version. It says, we'll deliver weal and woe. How a modern translation manages to produce weal when nobody really knows what that means at all, but it means we'll produce peace, but the ruler can also produce pain and evil. And God is still the ruler of all. So that passage recognises the legitimate rule of a pagan ruler. Some of you will have seen the film The Life of Brian. Some of you will probably have at least heard some of the, uh, the, the lines from it. And one of the most famous bits that comes up again and again, and I actually have heard our previous MP at one point uh, Palmjit Danda quote this at some point when he was being criticised for something or other and the leader of the People's Revolutionary Front of Judah which is not the Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Judah because they were loggerheads with each other said well what have the, what have the Romans ever done for us? A rhetorical question and somebody says um, well they've given us the aqueduct we've got fresh water Except for the aqueduct. What have the rumours ever done for us? Um, we've got ro roads. And then eventually, sort of people keep bringing out things. We've got sanitation, uh, medicine. They've given us some education. And somebody says, they've given us Roman wine as well. A lot of cheer from the audience there. And they've brought peace to the area. But except for all of that, what have the Romans ever done for us? St. Paul writes to the church in Rome that the powers that be are ordained by God just as Cyrus was. We're not quite certain when Paul would have written that, but it wouldn't have been very long um, after Matthew had written his gospel. But Matthew's gospel didn't actually appear um, until somewhat later. So probably some of them were aware of Paul's thoughts developing in this they're there to bring the civil societies there to bring order and justice, as it was doing in Palestine at the time. Are you meant to pay your taxes to Gloucester City Council? Well, if you actually want the services that are provided, you need to do it. You may, and I may, disapprove of some of the things they spend their money on, but we're not at liberty to pick and choose. Martin Luther was very clear that the gospel had come to produce two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven, which we have been called into, which is the kingly rule of God. But there's also the secular kingdom of the secular rule of the world. And the, those rulers, if they're operating with the, the mandate that God has given them, because God is ruler of all, are there to bring justice, peace and order. They may not do it the way you want, and you may want to resist in some ways to it, but by and large, it's part of our duty to keep the law 
when it's not in complete contradiction to what God has commanded. As Christians, we live in two worlds, and it's a tension. It's like having a foot in two different, uh, on, on two different sort of travelators at the airport, and one foot's going at one speed, and the other foot's going the other, and you've got to work out how to keep your balance. It's much easier if you're not a Christian and you're not in the world, because you're only living in the world. But Jesus would have known that he had come to call into being a kingdom of heaven, a kingly rule of God. And that would show a different standard and a different way and a different, a different master and a different Lord. So Jesus didn't so much as cleverly dodge this question, but he stepped over it and showed that actually both answers are right. But we live with the pain and the paradox of the tension of living between the two truths that God is our almighty creator of all, and yet God made God's self known in the life of somebody who is a vulnerable, humble, and life-giving servant. True God of true God, fully human, able to still the waves, and yet not prepared to save himself. We, and the whole world, may ask very demanding questions of God, and the psalmist is very good at asking those questions. Here is a prose poem you may have heard before, asking questions. It's called The Long Silence. For at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the throne talked heatedly, not with shame, but with belligerence. A bit later in Matthew's Gospel, we haven't got to it yet, is the bit we call the greater size, which this is modelled on. Can God judge us? What does he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far across the plain were hundreds of such groups, each had a complaint against God for the suffering and the evil he had permitted in his world. Oh, how lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or, hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that this person had been forced to endure in the world? For God lives a pretty sheltered life, they said. So, each of the groups sent forth a leader, chosen because they'd suffered the most. A Jew a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a human being. Let God be born a Jew, that the legitimacy of his birth be doubted, give him work so difficult even his own family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. 
Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. Then at last, let him see what it means to be terribly, terribly alone, and let him die. And let him die so there can be no doubt that he died, that there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced their portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. <laughs> 